This is an ABC podcast. G'day, I'm Clint Jasper. Thanks for joining me for a trip around a big country. This week, we're travelling to a remote island with a unique culinary tradition. While others may view migrating shearwaters, also known as mutton birds, through binoculars, on Flinders Island, they are a favourite food source to be revered and devoured. And all the locals seem to have their favourite mutton bird recipe. We'll hit the wide open road with an electric vehicle enthusiast who's taking on the tricky task of converting fossil fuel-powered engines to run on fully electric batteries. And we'll meet a long-time Shearer who's working smarter, not harder, and still shearing loads of sheep at the age of 75. If you can shear them fast, you make more money because you get paid by the individual sheep. And also there's a lot of prowess in being able to do it faster than someone who's younger than you, see? And what I've done now is I pick and choose the jobs I do, like the bloke that I shear with. Well, he can do only the tough ones and I'll do the easy ones. (laughs) delegation, the key to a long career in a notoriously tough industry. We'll hear more from that 75-year-old Shearer a little later. First today, we're heading to the tiny town of Brungle in the New South Wales Riverina region, where a program is underway at the local primary school to tell the First Nations stories of the critically endangered northern corroboree frog. It involves Indigenous elders, scientists, conservationists and the arts community working together to ensure ancient knowledge of the frog lives on. Emily Doak has more. The small northern corroboree frog has distinctive yellow or lime green stripes and a squelch call. As Walgaloo Wiradjuri man and Heritage Officer Shane Harrington explains, that call has cultural significance. So Gayak is a, is a Walgaloo word for our northern corroboree frog and the importance of, of Gayak is um, for our people that were travelling and moving through country, Gayak held law to give permission for those people to move. Our senior men would call to Gayak, so, so the pathways would be along rivers and swamps and our people would um, call to Gayak when they would arrive at those locations where Gayak inhabited. And so when they would call out to Gayak, if Gayak didn't respond, permission wasn't granted for our people to move to the next part of country. But our other story is that Gayak is a bringer of rain. So when we hear the thunder and we see the lightning them cracks, what's actually happening there, it's the thunder and lightning calling out to Gayak for Gayak to call back to give permission for the rain to fall. So Gayak is a law holder for giving permission, moving through country and for rain to fall, so which is part of our water creation stories, which creates rivers. A program at the Brungle School has brought together local elders, Taronga Zoo, conservationists from the Department of Planning and Environment and the Bangara Dance Theatre. The school's 12 students have been learning about the frog, why it's under threat and why it's special to First Nations people. Um, they look like black and yellow. Wild and National Park. Helping the corroboree frog because they are endangered. They lay 30 eggs. They don't have like the strength to um, actually jump like other frogs. So they have to crawl and get away from predators as fast as they can. They tell us all what the chytrid fungus can do and it keeps spreading and around and around until all of the corroboree frogs are extinct. And the chytrid fungus is really bad for them. My name's Regina Russell and I'm the AEO. 
it's connecting them to culture, it's connecting with language, learning history and sharing stories and it's really important to pass on those stories from our elders to the next generation. They visited the Mikalong Swamp to call for the frog <laughs> and found one. Travelled to Sydney to look at Taronga's captive breeding programs and the main stage at Bangara. The programs culminated in the development of a corroboree frog dance that will be shared with the local Indigenous community. Wiradjuri elder Auntie Sue Bolger was a key driver of the project. Bonding a community to look after our country and part of our country are the frogs, the animals, the plants, we need to look after them so that they will survive into the future. Uh, this is really a wonderful initiative for this school to be partnered with Taronga Zoo and with Bangara Dance Company. We are so privileged to have two of their dancers come to create a dance for the corroboree frog and be able to perform that dance on country. What will it mean for you to be able to see this story shared through dance with, with the community? Well, it's an expression of who we are with uh, frogs, the dancing, to remember that story so that it won't be forgotten. And the children who are performing it here today will then tell their children and teach their children this dance and it will continue. And that's what we want to do to, um, to keep it alive. Were you concerned that some of this might have been lost? Yes, very concerned. You know, when I was growing up, we uh, only knew a few words in Wiradjuri language. Uh, we've reclaimed our language now through going to Charleston Uni and uh, thanks to Uncle Stan Grant and Dr John Rudder that we can reclaim our Wiradjuri language. So whatever we can do now to put back into our community to reclaim things that have been lost is something we must do. Taronga's Susanna Boyd says while many of the zoo's programs are about raising awareness of threatened species, this was about building cultural connections. Ours wasn't necessarily about raising awareness in community that might not have a relationship with this animal. It was more about bringing back that connection and that responsibility through cultural ways. We've been able to connect with a community who still have a very rich and current connection to the corroboree frog. They still have their stories and they're also starting to reconnect with their surrounding mobs around the importance of this place and there's an importance to have Aboriginal people at the table and to reclaim their role because it's a system that's been in place for so long and was done right and done well and with, with the right intention all the time around your relationship with country and relationship with animals and species and our role in that as well. So for us that's where we've started here is how do we reconnect kids and community through our own familiar practices which is telling stories and coming together in a way that we're doing through dance and through music that feels very right. And while this project is all about preserving the stories of the corroboree frog 
Threatened Species Officer with the Department of Planning and Environment, Dave Hunter, says it also has a benefit to conservation efforts. Really, looking after a species like a cro- the crabberry frog, it's, it's about our value system. It's about saying we protect threatened species for a whole range of reasons, but we value their persistence. And what better way to achieve a good value system that helps look after the crabberry frog than involving the community who are so tightly, intricately linked with this culturally significant species. Shearing sheep is notoriously back-breaking work. The effort of moving heavy animals, then leaning over them to take their wool off, can be brutal on the body. So you'd think it'd be a young person's profession. But at the age of 75, Peter Allen is still hard at work in the shearing shed a job he's been doing on and off since he was 18. When you get to pension age, just relying on the pensions a bit, well, you don't have much spare money, but if you go out and shear, you could make four or $500 a day. So you only need to go out and do two or three days a week. And a lot of it, a lot of it was cash. So you know, it speaks for itself, you know, doesn't it? If you can shear them fast, I suppose you make more money because you get paid by the individual sheep. And also there's a lot of prowess in being able to do it faster than someone who's younger than you, see? What sort of thing keeps you going? Is it that competitive aspect? Uh, A little bit, but I suppose the alternative is not to do anything because I tried to go into the mining industry and because of my age, like when I decided that I needed to maybe stop shearing and find something a bit easier, but uh, the age, that eliminated that. So then I realised that I might as well just keep shearing. And what I've done now is I pick and choose the jobs I do, like the bloke that I shear with. Well, he can go and do the tough ones and I'll do the easy ones. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, I'm Sophie Johnson and I'm chatting with Peter Allen, who is based in Denmark in Western Australia's Great Southern region. He says the key to his longevity in the industry is taking care of his body especially his back. You can look after your back just by adjusting your back aid. The back aid hangs from the uh, above you and it's a series of springs and you can adjust them to, as you get older, you can add more springs in, you can uh, adjust the tension and really your top half's fully supported. So when I first started, there was no back aids, but I suppose that's what's kept me in the game really is like adjusting your back aid to suit, you know, say if you're shearing lambs, then you'll have it slightly lower and less tension. And when you're shearing, say, rams or or big sheep, weathers, then you'll have it higher and the spring's firmer. See? Yeah. So you've really prioritised taking care of your body and your yeah, health? it's knowledge. Well, most days I try to eliminate going for all day, so I'll go out and shear for three runs and then... Um, I'll knock off and then come back and finish them the next day. Because I'm the boss, I can spread it out over how many days I feel like. If I did, I did three days out the Franklin a couple of weeks ago, and that was pretty tough. You know, so you, you sort of try to not to do too much the following week. So what sort of things have you done over the years to look after your body? When you're younger, you, well, you think you're bulletproof, and you are slightly. When I had the shearing runs in Mount Barker, Oh, we used to work for 11 months of the year and that was six or seven days a week. That was tough and used to drink too much and uh, didn't look after yourself as much as I do now. But as you as you get older and you get 
wiser and more experienced, then you realise you need to uh, eliminate the stresses like don't drink too much and also eat the right foods. I mean, shearing is notorious for being such a labour-intensive kind of job. Did you imagine when you started, when you were in your teens, that you would still be going at 75? No, never. I I suppose when I started contracting, and at one stage, one year I had five shearing teams and employed 50 people, I looked at other contractors, the same vein as me, and I could see they were driving around just checking on the teams. They didn't do any shearing at all, and I, I envisaged that that would be me. I would uh, slowly wean myself off the hard work, but I ended up selling all those shearing runs and then started up again. I, I think that the stress of uh, looking after 50 people, uh, I don't think it was sustainable. There's the shearing industry, it's full of uh, bad stories with young blokes uh, running off the rails, so you trying to keep them on the rails, that was a job in itself. Like you, on a Monday when you hoped everyone would be ready to start work, then there'd be someone be in jail or they'd have a car crash or they'd just you know, run amuck and couldn't, couldn't uh, shear on the Monday. So it was forever trying to pick up the pieces. Peter Allen, who's working as a shearer nearly 60 years after he took up the shearing handpiece, he spoke to reporter Sophie Johnson. And before that, Emily Doak took us to the small town of Brungle in southern New South Wales, where a big effort is underway to promote conservation of a threatened frog by celebrating its cultural significance. And you can see more on that story, including a short video of the school children learning about the frog. You'll find it on the RN homepage. Just look for the A Big Country program page. I'm Clint Jasper with you on RN, still to come, giving old cars a new lease on life by converting them to run on electric batteries and getting a taste for a really oily and salty bird will learn why residents of an Australian island have a special spot for mutton birds. You're eating two-legged fish. That's the best way of explaining it to you. That's what you're eating. People go, what? Well, it's a young bird fed with fish. That's all it eats, all its life until it flies. Which is kind of what I said to you. Yeah, chicken and eel. Chicken and eel. That's Flinders Island local Lyndon Evans. He's wearing an apron that says, Dad, the man, the legend. And he's smoking mutton bird in his backyard smokehouse. You might know them as short-tailed shearwaters. The birds that fly are whopping 13,000 kilometres from Alaska to the shores around Bass Strait each year and then back again. Hello, I'm Mim Hook and I'm here on Flinders Island. On this island and nearby Cape Barren Island, part of the Ferno group of islands between southeastern Victoria and the northeast tip of Tassie, the shearwaters are known as mutton birds and they are revered and devoured. Meet Auntie Di Summers. I love them. We had them last night for dinner, actually. (laughs) She said, I've got some salted mutton birds here, Di. Do you want to come over? I said, my word. So we had salted mutton birds last night. You can cook a mutton bird pretty much anyway. I curry them, I braise them, I bake them, I fry them, I boil them, I barbecue them. The best mutton bird you can eat though is a stuck up mutton bird, which is a mutton bird cooked on a spit over the coals outside. And it's like a rotisserie mutton bird. And it's absolutely beautiful. It's the best way to eat it. On Flinders Island, everyone can tell you their favourite mutton bird recipe. 
mutton bird has been eaten by Tasmanian Aboriginal people for thousands of years. Here in the remote Ferno Island group, it has been essential for the survival of many different people over time. And Auntie Di Summers says mutton birding is a shared culture now. And it's not just an Aboriginal culture now. So it's a real Ferno Island group thing. And it's everybody's culture now. It's everybody's culture. It's a shared culture. A culture isn't a culture until it's shared. The mutton bird season on Flinders Island runs for three weekends in April. To go mutton birding, you need a licence and there are strict regulations. There are commercial licences too, owned by Aboriginal people. The process starts with getting fledgling birds from their burrows. Gwen Bailey remembers going mutton birding in the 1940s and 50s. First time I was in a bassinet when I went birding. So when I was about five, Dad used to say, do you want to come out and, and have a go, Gwen? And I'd say, oh, yeah, Mum would put these long men's socks on my hands and arms uh, because the birds bite really sharply. And anyway, I'd go out with Dad and trot around the rookeries and put Mum down. I'd only get three or four and I uh, was a little bit scared of putting Mum down the hole. Do you remember the feeling of the birds? Oh, yes, yes, I do remember the feeling. I mean, they'd try to pick you, but they couldn't pick you through the socks. I mean, Dad's hands were absolutely covered in in scratches from um, every bird season. One remote island, lots of love for mutton bird. Let's meet some Flinders and Cape Barren Island locals and find out their greatest of all-time mutton bird recipes. Yeah, I'm David Lowry, um, Pakenham man, Tasmanian Aboriginal person. Yeah, I love them. But, you know, all my family and everyone I know, they, we love them. We, we, we could eat them all day long, probably, if we could. How do you eat them? So there's many ways you cook them. You can cook them on the fire, on the barbecue. You can put them in the oven. There's different types of bird. They're processed different ways. You can have a plucked mutton bird, which is all the feathers are plucked out. It's more like a chicken. You've got all the fat on it. Or you can skin the bird, which you get rid of most of the fat and you've got more meat. But I, I, I probably first gun because it's a bit too much fat on the on the pluck bird, I think it sort of depends on the person. So favourite recipe? I don't have a recipe, just cook them. You can't put anything with them because it wrecks the flavour. Mick. And Mick, what's the best way to eat mutton bird? Best way is after a few tinnies. As the night goes on, the better they taste. Isn't that right? Noel, it's an acquired taste. Slow cooked in a, in a fry pan, mm. preferably outside. They're a bit smelly when they're cooking. Yes. Yep. Hatch, how do you have it? I like them 12 hours smoked over a coals with a crispy skin and a smoky flavour. The rib bones of the mutton bird. So they, you can eat the bones if you, you can. If you cook way. them enough, they crisp become crunchy. Crisp them right up. Yeah. <laughs> crisp them right up and they're beautiful. Just crunch right through them. Yeah, yeah they do. And there's little little um, bits of fat that stick to it. And it's yeah. <laughs> yummy. <laughs> That was Aboriginal elder Lillian Wheatley speaking about her favourite mutton bird recipe. How are you feeling? Would you try mutton bird? Locals here on Flinders Island love mutton bird so much they ration it out to last for the year. Do you keep them in the freezer all year round? Is that yeah? Most people have <laughs> yeah. what we call our eating birds. Yep. Mm. So go and get the eating birds for the year. Yeah. No, I guess not everyone goes over, but you know who's got them in the freezer, who you can get some off and have a barter for. and. Yes, measure it out till the next season. There is one person on the island, though, that doesn't like eating mutton bird. Meet Duca Hay. 
I don't like them. I don't know why. Like, everyone in the school, like, when I would used to say, like, I don't like mutton bird, they'd all look at me like, what? Seatbelt. We fired it up. So that's it. You've flicked a switch. I flicked a switch. We have uh, reverse, neutral, and forward. And, and we're in this classic 1967 Volkswagen Combi. Fully electrified. If you ever have driven a Combi before, you know, you're always having to try to regulate the gas and make sure everything's in gear. And now, you know, it's like a golf cart. <laughs> that smile that you see on your face is almost unavoidable. It's just a joyful experience. Once you look at the reliability and the speed and performance of what we can get with this, this is not uh, like the acceleration of a traditional combi. You just hear that nice subtle whir. Converting fossil fuel cars like this vintage VW combi to run on electric batteries is a passion for Noah Wozma. Hello, I'm Jennifer Nichols, and Noah is taking me for a spin in Lily, the fully electrified combi. As Australia lags behind other nations in imports of new electric vehicles, the Sunshine Coast man's business is being inundated with orders to convert fleet vehicles to run on electric battery. He says when integrating older cars with new technology, there's lots to think about. You want to make sure that you are integrating into the traditional pedals and braking systems. Keep in mind that this has regeneration as a braking mechanism so that when you actually hit the brake pedal, you're using regeneration of the motor as a slowing mechanism. So you want to make sure that you're engineered correctly with all of the other systems. When you get into more modern vehicles like a Hilux, then you're really talking about ensuring that you have full integration into the safety systems, traction control, stability control. That's much more complex, and that's where we've been working for a long period of time with sophisticated software engineers to really change that. Noah Wozma, we've got a passenger in the back here who's been a key part of your journey. Hi, I'm Ross Calder from British Off-Road. We're a Land Rover specialist who now very heavily into electric conversions with Noah. There is a lot of interest in it, and it's early days. People are all a bit wary of it. I think they like to see us do our own and show them off, but there is a huge amount of interest in it. In the back here, we've color-coded a battery box in there, disguised it, and put a 130 horsepower engine in there. Now it runs as silent as this. The car's on. <laughs> I can just hear a bit of bubbling. <laughs> yes, all you can hear from it at the moment is the cooling system. You still have a cooling system for the batteries and the motor controller, so fun was this to do? Oh, they're great fun. It's amazing to pull it out and then get that change in the vehicle feel and the reliability. We have a lot of Land Rovers at our business and we've done a, a Land Rover Parenti, the ex-Army Land Rovers. We've also done some Beetles and new Hilux. How much are we looking at in cost though for a conversion for a classic car? Really starts depending on what sort of motor you put. This is the lower end of motors and how much battery you put in there. So it is still at the moment expensive, mainly based on the batteries, 40,000 upwards. And how did this all start, Noah? A few years back, we had a vision of really taking classic cars. We wanted to really do something great for climate, and we wanted to do something to really help make these cars ready for the future. And I approached Ross and Mark uh, at British Off-Road and asked them if they would be interested in it, just on a whim. And really, the most exciting thing is they said, we've been thinking about this. Like, this is something we've wanted to do. And so we teamed up. And as we started to evolve this thinking, we said, you know, could we take a look at modern vehicles? Could we actually do this at scale, at volume? And the origins of this grew into a company that's now called Rove. 
that is really trying to build a thousand electric Hiluxes uh, today. We're more of the prototype and build partner and not so much the fleet volume partner. We will of course do some of those conversions but we do a lot of custom conversions for classics like this. So you're trying to get fleet deals. Have you got far on that? I know that there already has been a deal signed between Sea Electric and Mining Electric Vehicle Company, which you'll see a range of Toyota Hiluxes and Land Cruiser Utes converted to electric for the mining industry. How hard is it to get into this, to get those contracts? Oh, well, we see the demand is just unbelievable. We're really excited about it. We've gone out for an order book in terms of looking at volume, and it far surpassed our expectations. We have you know, over 500 different orders um, that we're working through just right now, immediately that we're trying to fill, and we're excited about starting that production to, to get those on the road. I think we're excited about that there's more companies getting into this. Keep in mind that in Australia, we import 250,000 utes a year, right? So it's not that we're really competing as conversion businesses, we're competing to help solve some of these climate challenges. How can we get volumes and volumes of these vehicles to move to electric? And we see conversion as another way. We can't just simply rely on new EVs. We have to look at the alternative mechanisms that we can be done at scale. Noah Wasma, CEO of Rove, based on Queensland's Sunshine Coast, who's converting petrol cars to EVs. He spoke to Jennifer Nichols. Before that, Mim Hook travelled to Flinders Island in Bass Strait, where locals gave her their tips on preparing and eating mutton bird. You can see more on that one, including a video of catching, cooking and tasting mutton bird. You'll find it on the RN homepage. Just click on the Programs tab and look for A Big Country. That's the show for today. Thanks for listening and bye for now. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.